Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Financial Friday on the Nerd Assassin podcast. On today's episode, we're going to start book four of Wealth and Nations. It's titled Of Systems of Political Economy. Today, we're going to look at the first three chapters of this book. In chapter one, we're going to look at what European economics thought made a country wealthy and how it influenced the regulations. In chapter two, we're going to look at the other countries restricting importations on goods, which could be made natively in their home country. And in chapter three, we're going to look at the regulations on all importation for countries where the balance of trade was considered disadvantageous. And we'll dive deep into these to say really what they mean. Starting here with chapter one, people confuse the wealth of a nation with the amount of money it has. This is sort of a natural confusion because money is both the instrument of commerce, it's what we use for trading and acquiring goods, but it's also a measure of value. When we look at an individual, we are looking at how much money do they have when we're talking about how wealthy they are. And we also measure the value of all other commodities and the amount of money that they sell for. A rich, con a rich country is thought to be rich in the same way as a rich man, by having a lot of money ready to spend. There are some arguments that people have tried to use to convince themselves that a country can get is considered rich by hoarding gold and silver, or could become rich by acquiring more gold and silver. One reason that they give for this is that any other commodity that a country tried to hoard, let's say they tried to hoard cattle or corn or bread, they'd be lost by waste or consumption. But money, as long as it doesn't leave the country, it doesn't really degrade or go bad in the same way doesn't get eaten up like corn or it doesn't end up dying like a cow would. Another argument that people use is that you should try to accumulate gold and silver in peace times so that way you can finance foreign wars when you need to send money abroad to maintain armies and ships. All European countries in the 18th century were studying ways that they could accumulate gold and silver in the country. One of the original ways that they made sure to have more gold and silver every year is they prohibited the exportation of gold and silver. So their idea is more and more gold and silver come into the country, and if I just make a law that nobody could take it out, I'm going to have more gold and silver by the end of the year. However, merchants that are trying to do foreign trade did not like this at all because it's easier to trade with other merchants with money than it is to try to find the exact good that they want and you know trade a certain amount of ammunition for a certain number of grain. It's way easier for me to sell all that ammunition than just buy the grain. This confusion of gold and silver led to most economic reg regulations. So because countries thought accumulating gold and silver is how you became wealthy, it led to many misguided regulations. And in this book, in book four of The Wealth of Nations, we're going to take a deep look into each of these regulations and show what is the real effect on the wealth of the nation by having that law around. Because merchants 
found it easier to trade with money, they tried to come up with arguments to allow the exportation of gold and silver. They, one argument they used is that it might, by allowing me to export gold, I might actually increase the amount of gold in the country because I can go out and buy, let's say, French wine and then sell it to another country for a large profit. So in this way, even though I let some gold go out of the country to buy the French wine, when I sell it for a profit, it brings more gold in. If I sell that wine to Ireland, there's more gold coming in than going out. One way to think of it is like planting a seed. A farmer is willing to let go of the, some good corn. Normally, that wouldn't make sense for me to just throw away some of my best corn. I'd want to go sell it and make money for it right away. But by planting the good corn, you can harvest it later, and you end up getting more than what you planted. Another thing that they argued is that because gold and silver have such small bulk, it's going to end up being smuggled out of the country anyway. So they push regulators to concentrate on the balance of trade rather than the exportation of gold and silver. Their argument was that as long as you make sure that what you're making in your country that's export is a greater value than what you import, you're going to end up with more gold or silver anyway. They're sort of looking at it a ledger rather than saying nothing can ever go out. Part of these merchants' arguments were solid. They were right in saying that exporting gold and silver could be advantageous to the country, that you were hurting the country by banning the exportation of it. They were also right in saying that a prohibition won't prevent people from exporting. Think about the prohibition of alcohol or of marijuana in the U.S. People still drank. People still smoked. People are going to do it if they want to. They'll be willing to spend more to make it happen. So people were still exporting, and they just have to pay more for the risk that they get caught. However, these merchants were not entirely correct. They were wrong on their fundamental assumption that government should try to increase the amount of gold and silver in the country. If you think about it, all their arguments were still about how do we get more gold in the country. But in reality, the freedom of trade would ensure that the proper quantity of gold will exist in the country like it does for every other commodity. If you remember in some of the previous chapters, we talked about currency, gold and silver, was just a way to circulate the economy. It's just a tool that's being used. So having more of it than you need doesn't really help that tooling go any faster. Let's compare gold, which was money in this time, to another commodity, wine. A country that doesn't have any mines needs to import gold. This is the same way that a country that doesn't have any vineyards needs to import wine. But why should the government pay attention to one commodity more than the other? A country who wants wine will always get as much as the country wants. If all the wines drink, drank, they're just going to go out and buy more. If England has more of a need for wine, people are going to be willing to pay for more of it, so more of it will get imported, and those end up buying more from France and Portugal. In the same way, the country will get the gold, silver, or any metal that it needs. They're bought for a certain price like any other commodity. If there's not enough gold in the country, people are going to be willing to buy it, and then Holland or France 
will go ahead and sell it over there where it's worth more than it is in their own country. We trust the free market to bring us wine, and in the same way, it'll bring gold to use for the circulation of commodities or in any other uses. Gold naturally regulates itself to the effectual demand. We talked about effectual demand a little bit back in Chapter 7. This is the demand that people are willing to pay for. So it's the amount of people that are willing to pay enough for that good to pay for the whole rent, labor, and profits to produce and sell it. Gold is even better than a normal commodity at this self-regulation. Because it's so small and cheap to travel from country to country, even over long distances, if there's more people that want or need it in your country, it will get there quickly compared to something that's really bulky like grain. might not be worth sending across even if you're willing to pay more for it. When there's more around in the country than the effectual demand, no government rule could keep it from leaving the country. If I could sell something for more in Canada than in the U.S., it's going to end up leaving to go be sold there. And in the same way, if there's too much in the country, the price falls and other countries are willing to buy it. When there's too little, the price rises and other countries sell it to you. So it'll self-regulate to have the right amount in your country. The easy transportation keeps it steadier than most commodities. If there was a famine that caused food prices to rise because of the cost and time to ship it from Asia to Europe, the price might stay high for some time, but gold moves quickly easily, so the price ends up staying more stable. And let's say, for argument's sake, there really was not enough gold, silver, or money around to be able to allow the circulation of goods. People would just start putting it on credit or bartering with it. So in every respect, the government has no reason to worry about the quantity of money in the country. So if you remember, one of the arguments that the merchants used was that we should hoard money because it's more durable than other goods. But let's further prove out that this point doesn't make any sense. No one would pretend that England would be hurt by trading metal forks and spoons to France for their wine. Wine's obviously a more consumable and perishable product. But if you have more flatware in your country than what people in your country actually use, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help France to have a ton of forks and spoons, even though they're more durable than the wine. In the same way, trading gold or silver for something less durable doesn't really matter. Having more gold in the country does not increase the amount of consumable commodities made or used. It doesn't like stimulate the economy at all. The real reason that foreign trade is good is not because you'll import gold or silver, but it's because you're sending surplus production. By surplus production, I mean I have things to sell and no one here wants it. We're creating more demand, and I, instead I'm getting rid of something that my country doesn't want and bringing in something that it does want. In this way, you're not maxing out your division of labor by the wants of your nation. Remember we covered in Chapter 1 
that the best way to increase production is by more division of labor. So this allows labor to divide even further. All this didn't really matter. All these arguments that I've been giving for why the merchants are wrong, because the merchants were still able to convince the people in power, the people that mattered, that instead of worrying about the amount of gold, they should worry about the balance of trade. Adam Smith has this quote, from one fruitless care, it was turned away to another care, much more intricate, much more embarrassing, and just equally fruitless. All, they started to ignore any trade within the country. So they didn't care anymore about if I was making something and selling it to another city. They only cared about foreign trade because they figured any trade within its country didn't, didn't bring or remove any gold. They saw it as an even amount. So countries tried to increase the trade balance by two main ways. Either restricting importation, making sure that they didn't take too many goods from other countries, and encouraging exportation, encouraging people to make stuff that would sell overseas. The next six chapters of this book cover these two restraints. They will, they will cover... Right now, in this episode, we're going to look at the two restraints on importation. So in this next chapter, we're looking at restraints on the importation from foreign goods if they could be produced at home. So the country will end up putting either a really high tax or absolute bans to make sure that if a good could be made at home, it would. It more or less creates a monopoly for the home market. A monopoly will encourage people to employ more labor and stock in that type of employment. But let's look at whether or not this really helps society. One important point is that there's no regulation or law that can increase the quantity of industry in a society beyond what capital can maintain. You can't make a law that will cause your economy to do better than the amount of money that can maintain it. All it will really do is divert part of the money and part of the labor into a new direction. It'll switch it from one job to another. Every individual, if we narrow it down and just look at one person, they're constantly trying to make as much money as possible. You never heard of somebody that's like, ah, oh, I'm really like overpaid. I wish I'd make less. Everyone's being selfish. They're not really trying to help society. They're not trying to go make more money because it's going to make USA richer. They're trying to make more money because they want to be richer. Naturally, though, the preference for employment of the individual ends up being the one that's best for society. If there's equal or nearly equal profits, an individual will prefer to doing jobs that are in the home trade to anything that's foreign trade. They'd rather trade with their neighbors than trade among different countries. And they would prefer the foreign trade to the carrying trade. So they would rather buy something from China to sell in the U.S. if they lived in the U.S. than they would buy something in China and sell it in France. The reason this is, is because if I live in the U.S., I know the people that I'm working with 
I would rather work with somebody that I know in my own community. And I also know the laws of the country better. So I know who I can trust, what businesses are good or bad. Compared to if, if I'm looking at a manufacturer in China, it's harder for me to know, is this a good or a bad manufacturer? Basically, what I'm trying to say is people would rather keep their business close to home. And we already showed in book two how this order, preferring the home trade to the foreign trade and the foreign trade to the carrying trade, makes the most amount of revenue for the country. The most amount of annual produce is made if you do it in this order. So every individual tends to want to invest their money and labor in industry, which gives the most revenue and employment to his own country. The other things that individuals do to try to make the most amount of money as possible is they try to produce the greatest possible value. And the annual revenue of society is equal to the exchangeable value of the whole produce of the society. The amount of wealth that a nation has, the amount of money that it made in the year, is equal to how much it produces. So every individual is trying to invest in a way to make goods that are worth the most amount of money. And by that, he is maximizing the annual revenue of society. The most famous quote from this book comes about this point. Adam Smith says, Led by an invisible hand to promote to an end which was no part of his intention. The individual, by being selfish, is actually helping society, even though he's not trying to. This is what he means by led by an invisible hand. Another good point is that an individual is better at judging himself and his community than any politician or judge. He's better at deciding what is going to make him the most amount of money than somebody in Washington telling him how he should spend his money. And by creating regulation or laws that create monopolies in the home market, he's essentially steering somebody one way or the other. He's directing people how they should employ their capital. And in almost all cases, these type of regulations are either useful or hurtful. If a good is as cheap to make at home as it is to import it from a foreign nation, then the law is useless because people are just going to buy it at home anyway. So who cares how much is imported? They're just going to buy it here anyway. If it's cheaper to make it in, a, in another country, this is when the regulation becomes hurtful. If me as an individual, I don't try to make my own shoes. It's going to take me too long. I don't know how to do it. It's not going to be as good a quality. Instead, I use my labor in something that I actually have an advantage in, something that I'm actually good at. And I purchase other goods with a part of my produce, whether it's the wages that I get or the profits that I get. I'm looking for what do I have an advantage in, and I'm going to buy everything else by selling what I don't need. In the same way, a country should buy commodities, which can be made cheaper in other countries. If I don't do this, the country is not producing something that's more valuable and instead making the products at home. The same way if I make my own shoes, I'm not really helping myself because I could be making more money by doing something that I'm actually good at. This ends up lowering the revenue of the country. 
Think about it this way. Would we want to ban all wines from importing them into Canada and instead grow all of our grapes in Canada? It would cost 30 times as much money and labor to make wine of equal quantity as could just be imported from California. Who, who's doing, whose advantage is this? Who's this good for? And Adam Smith says, whether the advantages with one country has over the another be natural or acquired is of no consequence. It doesn't matter if this is because your land's more fertile for making wine or if it's just because China has a lot of workers to be able to make good manufacturing. They still have an advantage and you should still use that to buy the cheaper products. The people that benefit the most from banning importation are manufacturers. They benefit way more than farmers. This is because it's cheaper to transport manufacturer goods. So even if there's a manufacturer overseas that have a small advantage, it will end up shifting everybody from buying local or compared to foreign. In episode 11, we talked about how manufacturers restrict competition within their own country. They use apprenticeships to make sure that they have a monopoly and they're the only ones in their town working. And this, these rules on importing is an extension of that, where they can now have a monopoly not only from local competitors, but also from foreign competitors. <clears throat> Even though in general, this ban on importation is a bad idea, Adam Smith does list four cases where it may make sense to restrict importation. The first one is if the good is necessary for the defense of the country. If it's something that I need to make to make sure that if I'm in war, I'm not screwed, then maybe it makes sense to make sure that I make it at home instead of relying on another country to make it for me. The second case where it might make sense to have a tax on goods that you're trying to import is if there's already a tax on home produce. So if there's a tax for making gas in the U.S., I should also have a tax on gas that's imported from the Middle East. This doesn't actually give a monopoly, but instead puts everybody on a level playing field. The third example is retaliation with a caveat. I shouldn't just add taxes because China has some goods, on, has some taxes on my goods, but I might want to tax somebody who's taxing me if I think that there's a chance that by putting on this tax, it'll make the other country repeal its own taxes. Even then, we should remember that you're putting a tax on the whole country in order to help a small part of your society who's affected by the tax. So if China has a tax on U.S. steel, maybe we tax something that they're giving us because we want them to get rid of their tax, and then once they get rid of it, we get rid of ours too. But now we're cost costing everyone in our country the stuff that they buy from China is more expensive in order to help just the U.S. steel market. So even then, retaliation should be not used very often. The last case that Adam Smith gives is if you're in some sort of field that's employing so many people in your country 
that a sudden disruption would be detrimental to the whole country if it made a large number of workers not able to feed themselves. A lot of people end up using this excuse for taxes, but it's more rare than people People would even imagine. If my goods exported at all to any other country, that means the good would still hold the home market. So then there's not a reason to put a tax on it. And most of the time, even if a large number of people lose their jobs, they'll be able to find other jobs. One example of a large number of people losing their jobs is all the soldiers who came back from World War II. Most of them are no longer soldiers anymore and were able to find other jobs. Adam Smith is doubtful that the freedom of trade will ever be restored, even with all these reasons that it's good to have freedom of trade. Because the industries and employers that are getting an advantage by it would fight tooth or nail to keep them around. You see this anytime we want to get rid of a tax on a country. The people that are in that industry are rallying as hard as they can to make sure that law doesn't get repealed. Every regulation that's added is extremely difficult to remove, even if it's detrimental to the country. The last case that we're going to look at, the last chapter for today's episode, is on the restrictions that a country puts because they want the balance of trade to be more in their favor. This second type of regulation is used to try to increase the gold in the country. The regulation is the same as the previous chapter, either really high taxes or sometimes outright bans. The last chapter we looked at regulations based on greed, based on merchants wanting to have a monopoly. In this chapter, it's all about national prejudice and animosity. It's about not liking the other country. Let's use an example where England bans all importations from France. No one's allowed to buy any French goods. If wine is cheaper in France and they make linens better, but now because of the ban, England needs to import them from Portugal and Germany. In reality, the total importations from all countries would be less if they just imported from the cheaper country, France. They're now importing a higher dollar amount because they're buying it somewhere where it's more expensive. They're spending more money and sending more gold out than if they just bought it from France. And also, a lot of the imports end up being re-exported. So they bring in more gold than went out. Third, it's really hard to measure which side's ahead in a balance of trade. So even if you could get, say that this was a good idea, how do you tell who is, who's exporting more stuff? How, do I, how can I tell if I'm buying more than France that I'm sending out? It's really hard to measure because you need to have an accurate measure of the value of the goods when they come in. And you have currency conversions all the time to make it even more confusing. So even if you wanted to increase the gold in the country, this trade restriction does not accomplish that goal. But nothing is more absurd than the entire doctrine that the balance of trade, which is the foundation for these regulations. A trade force by bounties and monopolies is harmful to the country who's trying to benefit from it. But all trade without force and constraint 
is always beneficial to both, even if it's not equally beneficial. If trade is equal, if I'm sending out from England to France the same amount that's coming in, and it's both native commodities, in England where they make wool, they're sending that out, and in France where they make wine, they're sending that out, both countries benefit equally. The parts that they're trading is going to be a surplus because the people that, that are manufacturing it would rather sell it in their own country. So they're trading something that they don't want, that no one at their in their own country wants, for something that their country does want. Both sides benefit, and you end up employing more people that normally wouldn't be producing this. Another example, you could have one side that trades native commodities and the other one who's trading foreign goods. In this example, both countries still gain, but the one trading native gains more than the one trading foreign goods. This is because the whole amount of native goods goes towards employing people in that country. But the ones tra trading foreign goods, you're really paying some of the wages for the people who made the foreign goods. This type of example is the same as somebody who trades gold. You can just think of gold as another foreign good. Another way that we can think about this sort of balance of trade idea is if I use money to buy $100,000 of French wine, which then sells in England for $150,000, England ends up benefiting by $50,000. They sent out $100,000 of goods, 100,000 pieces of gold, and they got back 150000 A country that doesn't have mines is no more likely to run out of gold or silver than a country without wineries is likely to run out of wine. Here's a quote from Adam Smith. Each nation has been made to look with the envious eye upon the prosperity of all the nations with which it trades and to consider their gain as its own loss. Commerce, which ought to naturally to be among nations, as it is among individuals, a bond of union and friendship has become the most fertile source of discord and animosity. Adam Smith is really saddened that countries have taken this sort of animosity to each other, that countries are jealous of each other. It should benefit both, and it should make countries be more friends and be closer to each other. The U.S. shouldn't be looking enviously at China for their increased manufacturing, the same way that France shouldn't be mad at that England's good at making clothes. They should be able to benefit each other, and they should be the same way that friends in a town are happy that there's a butcher and a baker. The best way for a country to operate is to let its citizens buy whatever they want from the cheapest person who sells it. This is so obvious, it doesn't even like seem like it needs justification. But merchants and manufacturers have convinced people otherwise in order to secure themselves a monopoly of the home market. If, we, if you were in war with another nation, you might want that other nation to be less wealthy than you. But in trade, having a wealthy neighbor, just like for individuals, is much better for for to have them as a customer, to have them to trade with. You'd rather be trading with somebody who's rich than dealing with somebody who's poor. 
as a country, you're most likely to grow wealthy when your neighbors are rich, industrious, and commercial nations. This is obvious if we just put aside national animosity and consider our own real interest. But businesses dread competition. Both nations complain that free trade would ruin their country. But there's never been a country impoverished by freeing up trade. On the contrary, they've only been enriched by it. That's going to end our episode today. Tune in next week where we look at some of the ways that countries encourage exportation from their own country. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me at The Nerd Assassin on LinkedIn, Twitter, or you can find The Nerd Assassin Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week.